Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and this is our podcast series that I'm in collaboration with Gord Vickman, who has appeared in my life and just brought many, many dimensions of capability regarding the podcast series that I've been developing and experimenting over the last six or seven years, starting with Joe Polish. Joe Polish was my great introducer to the whole podcast world. And we were doing it, and as Gord says, we were doing a lot of things right without even knowing we were doing a lot of things right. But Gord, one of the things a lot of people want to know here, the big thing on preparation, impact preparation, one of the things you said last time really hit a note with a lot of people, and that is that you've got to have something to say. And mm-hmm. But you're taking it further in your thinking about this, that stories are the best things to actually package what you have to say. So can you talk about that? Because, you know, you've been in studios for a couple of decades where people either had something to say or didn't have something to say. And one of the characteristics that people being listened to is that they're good storytellers. 100%. I think the most successful radio shows, the morning shows, are the people that convey a story and people that can tell a story. I mean, Howard Stern, whether you like him or whether you despise him, he is a great storyteller and he brings people on his shows who tell great stories. And people would listen to Howard Stern not only because they loved him, but also because they hated him. But he always found a way to keep people engaged. And that's just one example. And that's obviously the shock jock example. But there's something people who are able to tell really great stories are able to draw you in. So as an entrepreneur, if you're listening to the show and you're wondering about podcasting and you have certain products or services, what kind of story can you wrap around your product or service to engage people and to explain your brand to explain what you're doing much more so than just simply giving facts and that's one of the things that plays a huge role in the workshops especially dan the ones i've sat in and watched you there's tons of stories that link all of the concepts together so that's something that you had planned pretty much right from the start yeah and as a child growing up i had i think when i look back great good fortune because of my birth order i'm the fifth child in my family farm family But the other thing is both my parents were fifth children, so I'm the fifth child of two fifth children, and probably the odds of that are pretty minute. So one of the things that I learned how to do very early one is just ask questions about my parents' experience and other adults. One of the things is if you could get them to tell a story about their experience. There's a wonderful unifying impact of a story because it has a beginning, it has a middle, and an end. And the story, even if the person didn't intend for you to get that point, you can make up your own point that the story actually made. So I think that the stories are more than content. So, you know, there's a lot of belief this day you got to have tons of content. But content in itself doesn't explain why. Mm -hmm. It explains what, but it doesn't explain why. And we get our lessons from a combination of why and then having the what that actually substantiates the why, you know, and I, I think there's something about that. And I noticed in the coaching, and so, you know, this is my 30th year of group coaching. And before that, I had 15 years of one on one coaching. And whenever things would seem to be getting really complex or off track, 
I'll talk especially about coaching workshops, something has disorganized the room, I'll say, hey, I've got a story to tell about this. And whoop, everybody's watching me. And for as long as I'm telling the story, I have 100% attention. So my feeling is that this is almost genetic because before there was any kind of communication, there was storytelling about someone who had experiences that had lessons in them and had information in them. And we were just joking before we went on, you know, even in the animal kingdom, Little animals say, whatever you do, don't go to the water hole at sunrise and sunset because the predators are waiting for their meals if you go down and drink. So, you know, schedule your time not to be there at, well, that's kind of like a story, you know, but it's a story about a particular thing. And then humans got the same notion that, you know, if you want to catch something, go down to the water hole, it'll be home delivery. If you go down to the water hole, the food will deliver itself. So my feeling is that wisdom things that are always true or things you can rely on or that you can predict is best communicated within the structure of a story. I mean, we're all sitting here today because our grandfather 500 generations ago, somebody told him a pretty good story. (laughs) Food, water, shelter, and storytelling is the reason why we're all here. Yes, we had all those basic human needs met, but at some point somebody turned to your grandmother 500 generations ago and said, Those berries that look kind of tasty down by the river, yeah, they'll kill you. (laughs) So you probably shouldn't eat them. I know they look delicious. Oh, and by the way, that rock that you were hanging out by, yeah, there's a saber-toothed tiger sitting there right now. So you should probably not go and hang out there today. It was as important as food, water, and shelter, Mm -hmm. the the storytelling tradition, Mm -hmm. right? And you're right. I think it is genetic. It's buried so deeply in our brain to want and to need these things to help us move forward, essentially. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's in very sophisticated sophisticated forms today, but why did Netflix just suddenly take over? It was stories on demand, you know, Mm -hmm. you you didn't have to get in a car, drive, you know, someplace, you know, get in line, go in and sit in the seat to get your stories. You could just go through the vast menu of Netflix stories and say, oh, that looks like an interesting story. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that we're so, what I've say, finely tuned about what constitutes a good story from a bad story, you know. I'll get one that looks good in the way they advertise it, but I'm into it two or three minutes. I say, ah, oh, no, 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 it just takes too long here. It just takes too long to get into the story, you know. Mm-hmm. And I say, I'm out of here, you know. But ones that just grab you right from the beginning, they have you. So don't kind of fool around doing the setting. Just tell the story, you know. Mm-hmm. So let's get a story from you about your life as a very, very involved, very engaged with, you know, high-powered technology of being in the studios and kind of think of a story that really proved that the best shows on radio were great storyteller and you can remember a particular incident or a particular individual that a story that said wham that was just dynamite in my previous radio career doing morning radio there were a lot of obviously we had competitors in the marketplace and there were people that were doing this but you know everybody can do a contest and it's not about who has the best prize to give away it's not about who can scream the loudest it's not about who can play the most songs we got an inkling fairly early on when I joined the morning show as a producer that personality radio was what 
could help us win. So we started involving our families in the shows and we started involving our friends. It was very routine for me to just call up my dad at random. He wasn't too keen on going on the radio, but my mom would actually hide in the bathroom. When the phone would ring at 6.30 in the morning, she knew that it was me trying to get her on the radio. So she would lock herself in the bathroom and dad would be a little bit more into it. We called my sisters and all of my co-hosts, too. We would call their family members. We were sitting around, and I said, you know what we've done here? And also people within the community in London as well. We had the mayor in. We had the chief of police. This in is London, Ontario. London, Ontario, yeah. So I remember sitting around, and I was thinking, we've created almost like a Sesame Street here. We've created this little radio show where it was the place to see and be seen. You never really knew who was going to pop up. Like I said, we'd have the mayor on. Back when John Tory was the leader of the Conservatives, every time he would roll through town, he would come on the show. And we told essentially the entire community that you had an open invite. If you had something to say, if you had a story and it was relevant, let us know and you have an open invite. Mm -hmm. So that was why we succeeded. It wasn't about giving away the best prizes. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about, like I said, being the loudest or being the most obnoxious or being the nicest. It was we created this show where you never really knew what was going to happen or who was going to pop up. And I think that was the intrigue. And we invited other people to tell stories. We didn't make it about us and what we were saying. Mm -hmm. It was about you. It was always about the listener. And I think that's why the show was so successful. Yeah. So in all of our lives, and we have a major tool that got introduced into the 10 times program at strategic coach level, which was who do you want to be a hero to? Mm -hmm. Okay, and hero is one of those words which you even say the word hero and all of a sudden people's attention because humans love hero. And one of the things that I feel about that is that because ordinary life has become less and less heroic, things are taken care of us by big systems. Mm -hmm. You know, So we're not facing physical danger, we're not facing iffy whether there's food, iffy if there's water, iffy if there's people out to get us. So a lot of the dramatic storytelling of ordinary life has really gone out of people's lives. And I think it's been compensated that the heroes keep getting big on the movie screen and the newspapers keep getting more and more filled up with individuals responding to disasters in the world. They're not happening to you. But when you read about it or watch the reports and everything, your mind conjures up amazing things of danger that your life doesn't really have. Mm -hmm. And I think is that we're kind of being deprived to a certain extent. And quite frankly, I always tell people, look, I said, I take 40 flights a year for coach business. And I said, not once during those 40 flights do I ever want the situation to arise where my pilot has to be a hero. I do not want that. I do not want heroism. And it brings up a distinction between what I call reactive heroism and creative heroism. Reactive heroism is where a crisis is created outside of yourself. You didn't really have anything to do with the crisis. But you distinguish yourself by being a hero that actually solves or saves situations for other people, and therefore you're a hero. But in this world here that we're talking about, this world is a created world. Nobody said we had to create a podcast series on podcasts, but I was listening to the response of all the podcast series that I have, and I'm very prolific with podcasts, and I do that for a very specific reason. 
not just having one podcast. I have a lot of podcasts, mm -hmm. and each of them serves a different purpose for me. But what I want to do is that I want to create entirely new type of stories and contexts and lessons that is of great value to my audience, which is essentially an entrepreneurial audience. And it's easier to tell reactive hero stories than actually to do creative hero stories, mm -hmm. you know. You know, and one I told that people have really thought about it is Steve Jobs, after he came back from being fired from Apple, he essentially came back with a new view on things. And the first couple of things that he really brought out were the iTunes system using the Internet for music and then the iPod. And in both those cases, those things already existed. The Internet already existed entrepreneurs legally or illegally were already putting music on the internet so you can just download things and there were already mp3 players and the ipod was just a refinement on previous technologies so there's nothing new there what was new is the whole context that steve jobs projected out there and he said while i was away i kind of fell in love with music and i noticed there would be a particular song i would hear Love that song, but I would go to the record store and I discovered that in order to buy the one song that I loved, I had to buy a package that had 11 other songs that I wasn't interested in, okay? And then I started talking to musicians and they said, yeah, it's a real bummer because I have a really great song, but in order for the record company to take me seriously or even to package what I have, that one song, they require that I have a love and other songs. Mm -hmm. So that's not serving the purpose of my listeners. It's not serving my purpose. And the fact that I have to buy a love and other songs with the one song, that doesn't serve my purpose. It's serving the record company's purposes, but not my purpose. So I feel I'm, to a certain extent, being forced into a model that I wouldn't choose myself. And Steve Jobs says, well, fortunately, we can put things together in a new way now so we can take the Internet. And we're not going to steal music. We're going to pay. As a matter of fact, we're going to pay the musicians probably 10 times what they ordinarily make so that every musician in the world will be very enthusiastic about taking just one song and putting, oh, and that's the other thing. They don't have to create love and other songs. They can just put the one song up. And through the Internet and through our technology, you can communicate to your growing audience that you got a new song up there, and all you have to do is bring it down. And this iPod thing really is superior to mm -hmm. other MP3s. So we just put it all together, and it's 99 cents a song instead of 15 an album or a CD or a cassette, you know, depending on the delivery system. And it's funny, when I tell this story, I said, that's creative heroism. There wasn't any crises. I mean, having recorded music, you may not like the way it was coming, but it wasn't a crisis, and mm -hmm. you did get something that you wanted. But the record companies were not being heroes, and they weren't allowing musicians who were heroes to actually have a place in the spotlight. So that's a story. Okay, it's a story. It's got a beginning, middle, and end, including the fact that this was something he thought of at one of the worst times of his life when he was exiled. And he went out and transformed this into new creativity, and he came back, and he was a hero. And that's why when Steve Jobs died, I remember 
it was worldwide phenomenal that all the Apple stories, it was like a saint had died. or yeah. And, you know, there were vigil lights and there were flowers, you know, as if someone who was morally superior had developed. Well, he was a hero. He was a hero. He had created value that made things faster, easier, cheaper, and you got a bigger, overwhelming thought about it. Well, that's a story. It's a context. It's got a lot of content to it. But you're telling people about connections and creativity that they might not have thought of. It's interesting that you bring up jobs, probably indirectly responsible for what we're doing right now, or at least the name of it, because the podcast was a broadcast you listened to on your iPod. And then somebody, I believe, at The Guardian put them together and podcast was born. But nobody listens on an iPod anymore. But that's where it came from. A broadcast on your iPod is a podcast. Yeah. Now we do it on a phone. You demonstrated with your radio studio experience and the totally shameless way that you exploited all your family relationships. <laughs> and and, yeah, yeah. There wasn't a person anywhere in my life who wasn't badgered into coming yeah. on the radio show. And everyone, like I said, it was like Sesame Street. And they great. loved it afterwards. They, they loved it afterwards. And I just told the story. So I could give a lot of context just saying, you know, this is how you go about putting together a new show and give you a whole series of steps. But what we essentially did, just create two stories that mm -hmm. essentially get across a great deal of mean, oh, gee, you know, what can I put together that would be really, really interesting? Mm -hmm. That's a nice segue into the next thing I wanted to chat about. What can I put together that can be interesting? So I was watching some old SNL episodes over the weekend, and Steve Martin was doing his thing. Anyone on the north side of 30 will remember Steve Martin, really famous comic. They were asking him how do you get attention or how do you stay relevant after all this time? And he said, be so good, they can't ignore you. So what does it mean to be good? I mean, how do you even know if you're good, right? It could take a long time to figure out if you're good. So I started thinking and I twisted it a little bit. I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Dan. First of all, how do you know if you're good? And the way that I can twist his quote would be, if you can't be good, be so relevant, they can't resist you. What is it about coach that has remained so relevant for 35 years that coach has posted a profit every single solitary year. There must be something so relevant about the concepts that you're sharing, not only in workshops, but in podcasts, that remain so relevant after all this time that people just seem to be able to not resist. You know, one of our coaches, Lee Brower, who's one of our associate coaches, so I'm kind of head coach at Strategic Coach, but we have associate coaches, and the vast majority of our entrepreneurial clients, their experience of strategic coaches actually with their associate coach, not with me personally. And actually, I was in a workshop with the coach who has the second most years of coaching as an associate coach. And she asked me, I was in Chicago, she was coaching in Chicago, and I was there to coach not on that day. And she asked if I would just drop by the workshop. And she introduced me to five strategic coach clients who've been in coach for 24 years. And they've attended every one of their workshops with Adrian Duffy. This is the coach's name. And this is the first time that I had met these five individuals. But they've been in 24 coach. years. 24 years. And the thing is that they were really enthusiastic. They told me, how the thinking processes that we create had really allowed them to think about their life differently, and they'd made all sorts of strategic decisions that took them in a much more profitable, much more productive, 
direction because we put so much emphasis that it's both your personal life and your business life, you know, that you've got to take care of both of them. And if one of them improves, it automatically improves the other. And we did that whole thing. It was very, very interesting that it was proof of concept for me. I mean, 24 years and the system works and those clients had to pay the same way that all my clients, namely all the money is up front before you come to your first workshop. So it's not only a profitable model, but we have a no receivables model. Mm -hmm. So that was Adrian Duffy as a coach and I talk about Lee Brower. Lee Brower said, you know, all the competition in the world right now on any stage is to be more interesting than anyone else. But he said, the thing that really makes you memorable is not where you're the most interesting person, but where you're the most interested person. So that when you brought your family members into the studio or online, you were talking to them, it wasn't to make you look good. It was to make the stories of people that you know really interesting to people who are listening. So Mm -hmm. what you were interested in was not you being interesting, but to be so interested that the listening audiences was really interesting and the people that you interviewed was interesting. So the whole point, and again, we're establishing basics. Don't try to be interesting. Never, never compete with someone who's on the show with you. You want to be as much usefulness so that that person is interesting to the audience that you're doing. Interesting not just in who they are, but interesting that they too have important information that the audience will really appreciate. That's a great spot to wrap up, Dan, because we can put it in a little package here with a bow. Every time you're doing a show, it's never about you, but it's always about the listener and it's always about the benefit, right? Just like a sales call. If someone were to call you and they're offering you a product or a service and they're talking about what they're going to get out of it, that call is not going to last very long. We focus on the benefits and we focus on the listeners and the benefit that they're going to get from your show. So that's a great spot to wrap up, Dan. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Dan. Thanks a lot, Gordon.